Good morning. Thankful for the opportunity to remember, and uh, David, I especially appreciate the remembrance of that hope to come. Well, we will return this morning in our study in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 7, right there at the beginning. You know, we all have the opportunities to meet persons for the first time, a little bit less this past year, as uh, we've been a little more restricted. But when you meet persons for the first time, how quickly do you think it is it that you begin to form your assumptions and your opinions about other people? If studies are correct, it takes as little as 33 to 100 milliseconds for you to begin forming those first impressions and begin making evaluations of other people. One humorous illustration about how we make snap judgments was given. Imagining that you step onto a bus and there's only two seats available. One of them's next to a sweet, timid-looking elderly woman. The next is next to a gruff, grim-faced, burly man. Based on your immediate impression, you almost certainly sit next to the uh, sweet, timid, elderly woman. As this anecdote goes, in this case, unfortunately, it turns out that this woman is quite skilled at picking pockets. Because of your immediate oppressions and assumptions, you immediately judge the woman as harmless, the man is threatening, leading to the loss of your wallet. Now, we understand that quick thinking and awareness of our surroundings and certain assumptions are necessary. I mean, they're necessary to safely navigate this life. We understand that. But when it comes to evaluating motives, intent, or the character of a person, we do well to be careful about quickly forming opinions. The reality is that we judge persons based upon finances, cars, houses, clothing, nationality, ethnicity. We quickly develop these assumptions, and these assumptions, they set like quick, dry concrete, requiring a jackhammer to break them apart and dismantle them later. And when it comes to persons, especially when it comes to dealing with sin in others, this type of rash judgment is not only dangerous, but it is forbidden as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look carefully at a well-known passage of Scripture from Matthew 7, so that we might learn to judge ourselves rightly before judging others, and how to carefully go about the process of judging and evaluating. So if you haven't already turned there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, in the midst of this Sermon on the Mount, as he's got his disciples, which we know is more than just the twelve, Later in Matthew, we know it may have been as many as 50 to 70 to 100 that were considered the disciples. And then the greater crowds, they're gathered around on this hillside. Jesus, in the midst of that, moves to the section where he says, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. From the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underneath and turn and tear you to pieces. Pray with me. Father, we readily confess that each of us has been guilty of quickly judging and evaluating persons. Even if not vocalized, we do it in our minds. Father, would you help us to humble ourselves before your word, humble ourselves before your teaching, to put on the mind of Christ and to make it a daily battle to to rid ourselves of this sinful tendency, to instead begin to rightly evaluate and see others. Father, as we open up your word this morning, would your spirit do its work in both guiding us, instructing us, teaching us, and rebuking us as we desire to be more like you, to grow in sanctification and holiness. In your name, amen. As we read this passage, I can't help but ask, why did Jesus move from the pursuit of wealth and anxiety over physical needs in chapter six to now a command to avoid judging others? Why the transition? What is the logical connection here? I think the short answer is that Jesus understands how humans act and think and he knows where we struggle. That's the basis for what he's doing, but why? Well, let me ask you this. Have you you ever come to the realization of something for the first time? Now, this isn't new information, but it's new to you. And you get excited about it. What do you want to do with that? You want to tell others about it. You want others to see what you've seen, to understand, to experience what you've experienced. You can see this with children where they realize something for the first time and it's, Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad. They're excited. They want to share it. They will interrupt you at all expense to make sure that you get to see what they've just learned and experienced. And it's our natural inclination. It's, to a certain extent, it could be good where we want to help those around us to recognize things, especially when it's things that may help them. Maybe it's to help us grow and recognize sin. Maybe it's just an understanding of who God is. We want everyone to see this new reality. There's the Greek legend of Archimedes who was so excited about the discovery of displacement that provided a solution to the king's dilemma that he leapt out of the bathtub and ran naked to the palace. For many of us, the discovery of biblical truths and the Spirit's unfolding of truth to us has much the same effect as Archimedes' revelation. We become excited and focus on the truth at the expense sometimes of everything else. Unfortunately, there's times in our frailty that this zeal and excitement can lead to a brashness and even a critical spirit towards those that don't get it, especially if they don't get it right away. Or perhaps you begin to now have this lens and you treat this knowledge more as a little bit esoteric, that special private knowledge, you begin to judge everyone who doesn't have the same understanding you do. Or they don't respond the way you responded to it. So you begin to form opinions and critical opinions of them. So you develop a critical attitude, you leave no room for growth in others, no patience for their learning. 
If they don't get it all right now, this minute, the same way you did, then clearly it's because they are spiritually shallow and immature, maybe even unregenerate. For some, this attitude marks their overall demeanor. Frustration, impatience toward others, others that don't have the same understanding or respond in the same way. Well, remember again here in Matthew 7, Jesus has just finished providing instruction on key motivations of the heart, temptations that plague all of us. One of the most significant areas of temptation that plagues all of us during our lives under the sun as he dealt with wealth and then anxiety for just even the basic necessities of life in Matthew 6. Here at the beginning of chapter 7, he uses the present active imperative, commanding the disciples and hearers to stop judging, implying that they were already doing this. Stop doing something you are already doing. This isn't just a future command, a hypothetical. No, you are doing this. Stop it. Perhaps some of the disciples, those in the crowd, began to immediately apply Jesus' teaching to persons they knew. They're beginning to form those judgmental and critical thoughts towards them as they sat there listening to Jesus' teaching, thinking, if only so-and-so were sitting here, they're the ones who really need this. To my own shame, I've studied the Bible or sat listening to a sermon, and as the application comes, my thoughts immediately begin to run to, I wish so-and-so would hear this, or so-and-so could really benefit from this rebuke, so I don't have to do it. And now it's maybe true that it would benefit them, But my first thought should have been what? Lord, forgive me for how I have exhibited this. Lord, help keep me from this error. I was not first focused on my own sinfulness and need for sanctification, but rather on correcting others. Jesus recognizes that it is so easy to be critical. It's easy to condemn. It's easy to want to fix others. And he recognizes that it creates a self-righteousness within us that feeds our pride. This was the issue with the Pharisees and the hypocrites who he's been dealing with in chapters 5 and 6. They were concerned with condemning others, judging others, exhibiting an outward display of righteousness so as to avoid dealing with their own sinful hearts and motives. And as one commentator noted regarding this passage, ignorance of oneself is often mixed with arrogance towards others with disastrous results. Well, Jesus wants to keep us back from that disaster. He wants to pull us back from the edge of the cliff. So Jesus, recognizing this great pride that exists within us, turns his attention to this very subject here in Matthew 7 and instructs us not to judge. That passage is perhaps one of the most quoted passages of Scripture by believers and unbelievers alike, isn't it? Yet the context and meaning are almost always ignored or lost on those who use it. So what is the meaning of Jesus' words here? What does the word judge mean? That's really where we need to start talking about this as we look at this passage. What does judge mean? It's not an unfamiliar term. In fact, we have probably, many if not most of us, have used it this week in one context or another. Or maybe we heard it on the radio or on the news. Well, just as our English word judge has a range of meaning, so does the Greek term. So how are we to understand that meaning and what meaning is intended by Jesus in this context and in this sermon? Well, the answer is the same as how I would have known how you would have used it this week. 
or how you knew what was meant when you heard someone say it. And it's all about the context of what is being said. So let's look at what are the possible meanings, and then based upon our context, let's see if we can arrive clearly at what the meaning of this term judge has here in this context. First, and maybe most prevalent, the term judge, when you hear it, brings to mind an actual judge, and specifically their act of judging, judicial decisions, a court trial. There are, in fact, some who take this verse to mean that a Christian can never serve in a judicial capacity. However, this meaning seems quite far-fetched, if I'm being honest, especially concerning Paul's words in Romans 13, where he reminds us that governments are given by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This demands that they judge between evil and right. Human governments will always do it imperfectly, some more than others, some judges more than others. But it does not change the fact that God has set up human governments for the very purpose of judging. So that could hardly be what Jesus intends here when he says, do not judge. The second possibility could be a reference to divine judgment. However, we can quickly rule that out since we are not divine. God alone is the eternal judge enthroned in heaven, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The third possibility is that it could be a command to never admonish, to never judge the sin or false teaching of others. Many take it this way. However, Scripture is replete with instructions and commands for believers to both admonish and judge sin and reject false teaching. In verse 6, here in Matthew 7, judgment is necessary to avoid giving what is holy to dogs and pearls to swine. Later on in chapter 7, verse 15, it says, beware of the false prophets. How are you even going to know a false prophet if you are not judging and discerning? Hebrews 13, leaders in the church are to be followed and imitated only after you have first considered their conduct, their faith, and their teaching. In other words, you must continually judge and evaluate the character, the faith, and the teaching of those who lead you in the church. Paul makes a judgment against unrepentant sinning believers in 1 Corinthians 5.5 where he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. John tells believers to test or judge. If there was ever someone who was concerned about love, it was John, whether it be in his gospel or in his writings. But there in 1 John 4, 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, that is person, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. As early as the second century, Irenaeus had to defend church leaders' right and responsibility to reprove those who err against those who would use this verse to try and get away with sinful behavior and sinful teaching. And his defense was primarily a response to a misrepresentation and this type of bad teaching about this verse. Seems pretty clear that Rebuke against sin and false teaching is not the prohibition Jesus is expressing. So that leads us to a fourth possibility. This is a prohibition against contempt, prejudice, and personal condemnation. Now this seems to fit. Not only does it fit this context pretty well, it also aligns with many other scriptural admonitions and exhortations. 
In Romans 14.10, Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see that combination of judgment and contempt. James says in James 4.11, do not speak against one another, brethren. That term speak against one another is another phrase. It's, it's the little more spelled out version of slander. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. You're slandering the law itself. But if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. However, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Jesus' command against judging then is a command against a haughty and a prideful spirit that looks down upon others, condemns others, and acts with prejudice against them. It's very similar to, and it goes hand in hand with the unforgiving disposition of Matthew 6, 14 through 15. The key component here, by the way, is the absence of love. As Osborne notes, this admonition has a humility that says, I love you enough to want to help you. Tomorrow, you're going to need to help and correct me. There's no sense of superiority, no desire to make yourself look good at the expense of others. So how do I know if I'm being judgmental? How do I know if I've gone from loving concern and humble concern to that judging, critical, condescending spirit and attitude? Well, here's some practical ways we can, and questions we can ask to identify this judgmental attitude. But before I go through this list, I want to encourage you to work hard at putting out of your mind any other person in any other situation other than your own. Your first responsibility this morning is to ask in what way and to what extent does this apply to me? Not to my husband, not to my wife, not to my children, not to my friends, not to my neighbor, but to me. One question you might wanna ask is, do you exhibit a speed and a quickness to judge and condemn? or express contempt towards others? In other words, do you jump to the negative, especially with regard to persons, very quickly? Closely related, do you express opinions about persons and situations about which you have little or no direct dealing? You love to pontificate and speak about situations and really you don't know much about it. Pass judgment on a person. Say something about their character, something you heard, and you don't really know. Thirdly, do you demonstrate prejudice? James deals with this. Prejudice toward or against persons in the church. This prejudice can be on the basis of, again, wealth, nationality, ethnicity, you name it. It's just about anything that exists under the sun, we can find a way to judge a person based on it. Rather, we are to judge based on principle, not on prejudice, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. Do you have a tendency to favor personalities in place of principles? We see this in this celebrity Christian culture where the adoration of a person often blinds us to the fact that they are merely persons. 
sets us up for heartache and disappointment when they sin. Or worse yet, we excuse their sin. It also blinds us to those who are in reality false teachers, who say the right thing, but they're driven by greed, ambition, or some other motivation. Do you draw conclusions and pronounce judgment without taking the time to gather facts and going through the uncomfortable process of becoming acquainted with the details? You simply don't want to go through the trouble of understanding the circumstances. But you're still willing to draw a hard and fast conclusion, whether it be about a person or a situation. Do you express conclusions and judgments about persons in absolute terms? Specifically about a person's motives. I know the person did it for this reason. This is what they meant. You don't leave room for someone to disagree. You're combative when your conclusions are challenged. You're unwilling to acknowledge that you have imperfect understanding. I'd be surprised if each of us were not able to find in this list areas in which we both need to repent and work hard at correcting. Now both verses one and two contain an important reason for avoiding this judgmental attitude and behavior. So that you will not be judged. Though the agent, the one doing the judging here is unstated, if I were to take a poll, I think we would all clearly understand this is God himself. God is the one who will judge. A disciple of Jesus Christ must not be cavalier in their behavior and think that because they have escaped eternal judgment, that they have thus escaped all judgment. As Paul reminds the Corinthians, the Lord continues to judge and discipline believers even in this life. 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul writes and says, For this reason, many among you are weak, are sick, and a number sleep. Euphemism for death. But if we judged ourselves, evaluated ourselves rightly, we would not be judged by God. But when we are judged, we are disciplined. In other words, he's equating the judgment here with the discipline of the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Hebrews 12 likewise reminds us that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and judges. Verse 2 here reminds us that the standard of judgment will be as severe as that which we use toward others in our prejudice, condemning, and unforgiving attitudes. Remember again, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6, where if we will not forgive, it will not be forgiven us. Remember the story of the slave in Matthew 18. The one who owed so much money, and he was so graciously forgiven, and how quickly he forgot. It, was, it sets the picture. He's walking out the door, bouncing with excitement that his debt has been forgiven and happens to bump into his fellow slave who owes him a cheeseburger, at least that much worth of money. And what does he do? He demands at that min minute, every bit that is owed, give it to me now. And because he didn't have it on him, what does he do? He has him thrown into prison. So what's the response? Because he judged, because he condemned, because he attacked like that, this analogy shows the king, first off, the servants who observed were horrified. 
at what had taken place. They tell it to the king. The king is distraught and horrified in light of what had just been done. So what does he do to that unforgiving slave? He has him cast and ha- into the prison, handed over to the torturers until he is repaid every last cent. His harshness in dealing with the slave led to his being thrown in prison. And that's how we will be judged. With the same severity with which we cast judgment. In many ways, this is reiterated throughout Jesus' own teaching as well as Scripture as a whole. What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's just a very simple anecdotal way of saying the exact same thing. Jesus' exhortation against judgment was not an exhortation, though, against all discernment or identifying sin, but it is a call to stop complaining, condemning, showing prejudice, and slandering others. Now, in verses 3 through 5, Jesus is going to lean in even harder against the absurdity of this judgmental attitude by highlighting the hypocrisy and pride that is often present in this type of person. Quite frankly, that exists within us at times when we show this attitude. There we talk about removing the speck from our brother's eye while having a log in our own eye. Now the speck refers, uh, quite in a literal sense, as a reference to a a small splinter, a small piece of wood or a piece of dirt or dust or chaff that got got in the eye and it's irritating the eye and you're trying to rub it out. Jesus was a carpenter, which is really much more akin to a day laborer in the construction industry, by the way. It was quite possible that Jesus was borrowing from the materials and experiences with which he was familiar. Certainly there had been a time where a splinter or a piece of debris had got into his eye while working on building projects. But here that speck is being used metaphorically, right? It's being used metaphorically for sin. And Jesus acknowledges here that fellow believers will have sin in their eyes. He's not saying they are without specks. No, they're going to have specks in their eyes. But Jesus here is concerned, firstly, with how we go about addressing those sins that we observe, especially when it is at the expense of ignoring the obvious sin in our own lives or even taking the time to identify the sins in our own lives. For all we know, the person with the beam sticking out of his eye isn't even aware of it. That's why we're, it's expressed we're blinded by sin. We often need others in our lives to even help us see sin. But I think we would see a lot more of it if we would take the time to be introspective. We talked about prayer and praying as we walked through Matthew 6. The need to regularly be confessing and seeking and looking for the sin and rooting it out. As John Owen said, putting to death daily or mortifying sin daily. Jesus here employs some humorous hyperbole to get the attention of his hearers. We don't often think about Jesus being funny, but there's a hyperbole here. I I would not have been surprised at all if some of the disciples and some of the crowd began chuckling or laughing out loud when they heard him use this analogy with this beam sticking out of your forehead. We've heard it so much that it's a little bit, it's lost on us, especially if you've grown up in the church. That's funny, think about it. You had a log stuck sticking out of your forehead. 
But there's a seriousness about this as well. This metaphorical beam is dangerous. It's damaging for the one who has the two-by-four protruding out of their eye as well as the person they're trying to help. Josephus used this term for beam to describe the long and thick mast of a ship that was used by the Roman commander and later emperor Vespasian. Vespasian used this for a battering ram. The massive beam was armed with a huge piece of iron on the front that was shaped into a ram's head and affixed to the end of the beam that they would then use to batter against the walls and the gates. It was specifically used against Jerusalem itself. It was after the time of Christ. So I don't think Jesus was referring to Vespasian's battering ram, but you can see the damage through analogy that this blindness does. To interpersonal relationships, this metaphorical beam Jesus describes can be more dangerous, more damaging than the battering ram as it beats and pummels a person with words, assumptions, and accusations. The relational and emotional damage done by the person with the beam in their eye is as damaging as Vespasian's iron-capped battering ram was to the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. So Jesus' question in verse 4, how can you say would come across as shocked and disturbed by the fact that persons had the audacity to try and attend to the spiritual needs of others in this battering ram-like fashion while they are in such a far worse spiritual condition? This passage demands mercy as those who have received mercy. It demands that we at times lay over and even not pursue or correct another's fault, even if we've correctly identified their sin, until such a time as we are doing it for their good, not for our own purpose, and until such a time as we have dealt with our own sin. We can justify ourselves so easily, can't we? Um, I saw their sin and... God doesn't want them to have sin, so I needed to go after them. Without taking the time to search our own hearts, our own motivations, and our own sin. Now, why is that so important? There's a bunch of reasons. Some of them are going to become very evident. But remember again what confessing your sin does. What taking the time to recognize your sin does it creates that poverty of spirit that we saw in the Beatitudes. It creates a meekness. It creates a humility so that you're prepared to go to them, not as a battering ram, but as a comforter and a shoulder to lean on, as, a, as an arm to reach around them and help them walk along until they can walk by themselves again. Notice the reference here to brother. Well, gentleness and love should mark all of the interactions a believer has inside the church and outside the church. The specific instance to which Jesus is calling our attention is interpersonal relationships between disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for this, and this is a little bit of a parenthetical to the main point. And that's that when it comes to identifying sin and helping deal with sin in others, that should be an almost exclusive issue amongst believers. Why do I say that? Well, we shouldn't be surprised or shocked when an unbelieving world acts like an unbelieving world. We should not be shocked when an unregenerate sinner sins. Nor should we simply and only try to get them to stop that sin or correct that behavior. 
That's not to say we should not encourage an end to dangerous or destructive behavior, but our primary responsibility to an unbeliever is to share the gospel, not stop a sin. If we focus on trying to correct behavior, all we have done is dress someone up for eternity in hell. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel, to share the hope of salvation. We are looking for God to change their heart, not a superficial change in behavior. Returning to this context, this is then about believers. And it involves helping one another rid sin from our lives, grow in sanctification and holiness, and become more Christ-like. There at the beginning of verse 3, you see Jesus express, why? It's emphatic. It's sincere. It's a sincere call to analyze one's motives, to ask yourself, why? Why are you going about it this way? Why are you doing what you are doing? No one would want a blind surgeon operating on their eyes, but when we first We do not first deal with sin in our life. Our attempts at helping believers is as useful as the operation of a blind surgeon, which is to say it's not. In fact, it's more likely to hurt someone than it is to help them. And the answer to that why is that we easily forget our own sin. But when we walk around with meekness and poverty of spirit, or when we don't walk around with meekness and poverty of spirit, when we have forgotten our own sin, when we've allowed that pride to creep in and we look down upon others instead of trying to come alongside, we become, as Paul said, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That lack of love which believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things is there to prevent others or prevent others from, from being hurt by you. Even if you're correcting correct in pointing out the splinter, even if you have correctly deduced and identified a problem in someone's life, that's only part of the solution. Just like, again, going back to that surgeon, you don't want a surgeon who, can, who is only good at identifying the problem but really bad at solving the problem working on you. You want one who is good at both. So it's only one half of the equation. There's plenty of people who can go around identifying problems that we are very good at that. We're not so good at solving the problems. If we really want to help one another, then we will direct the majority of our effort at fighting the sin that so easily entangles our lives. It may seem a little counterintuitive, but the best way in which you will help others, the best service you can be to your fellow brother and sister in Christ, is by focusing on ridding sin out of your life. Secondarily, in helping come alongside and correcting sin in their life. Jesus added verse five, and for an important reason, if Jesus had stopped with verse four, we might have assumed that we're to deal with our own sin, certainly, but we're to never talk to a fellow believer or go to them over their sin or wrong. However, Jesus did add verse five. Jesus wants his disciples to humbly, compassionately aid one another in abandoning sin. The key is we have to see clearly to do that. 
And the prescription for seeing clearly in the spiritual sense is by first, what we've already talked about, confessing our own sin, cultivating that deep humility and poverty of spirit and walking in meekness with regard to our relationships, recognizing my deep dependence upon God and even my dependence upon other believers. As Quarles notes, a person who has removed a beam from an eye successfully is well qualified to assist in removing a speck from another's. And so contrary to those who, quote, do not judge, have a desire to avoid any confrontation over sin, this passage actually instructs and supports lovingly identifying sin and dealing with sin. But it acts as a tremendous restraint against vindictive, arrogant, prideful, callous attempts at confronting or attacking sin amongst believers within the church. And having passed through the gate of the Beatitudes, developing a poverty of spirit and meekness, recognizing our own shortcomings, we are then fit to see clearly to help a brother or sister in need. With no sense of superiority, simply love and concern. As Morris notes, Jesus is drawing attention to a curious feature of the human race. That in which there is a profound ignorance of oneself that is so often combined with an arrogant presumption of knowledge about others, especially about their faults. Jesus wants his disciples to run away from this tendency. But he also doesn't want them to throw caution to the wind. He doesn't want his disciples to eliminate all discernment. And so he provides a brief but vivid illustration in verse six to counterbalance kind of these extreme tendencies that I'll say we have. There in verse six, we see, uh, again, it's a vivid illustration. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Dogs and pigs were not regarded with much esteem in ancient Israel. They were considered unclean. In fact, amongst some of the most unclean of animals, you would not find bacon-wrapped hot dogs being sold in Jerusalem. The wild dogs that would run around in the streets were often ravenous. If you fed them a little, they would then start to pursue you, looking for more, and even attack you. There's illustrations given about feeding wild dogs outside of the city gates only, and even then beating them off with a stick after, as soon as you feed them. Pigs, likewise, are known for being dirty, eating almost anything, and making a mess of whatever place they're kept, trampling everything underfoot. Jesus' words here, do not give what is holy to dogs or cast pearls before swine, is a unique figure of speech, but what does it mean and how does it fit with what we just looked at? Well, pearls are equated with wisdom in Job 28.18. We're likewise familiar with the parable of the pearl of great value in Matthew 13, reference to the wisdom of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Put rather simply, there's a bunch of different interpretations on this, but put rather simply, this is an admonition to show discernment in the application of the previous verses. In other words, judge wisely, judge carefully before confronting sin whether with a brother or in even in presenting the message of the kingdom. Proverbs provide some help in highlighting the response of those who either do not fear the Lord or scoff at correction. Proverbs 23, 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Proverbs 9, 
7 through 9. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. He who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. Instruction Jesus provides is to be discerning and discriminating and removing the specks and in the preaching of the gospel itself. Paul had to do this. He had to show discernment in what he taught the Corinthian church because they were not yet ready to receive it. 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. I had to speak to you as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Paul couldn't even teach them the things he wanted to teach because of the sin that they were unwilling to rid themselves of. Certainly, while there may be a need for the church to be involved in calling another believer to repentance, this is a warning against continually trying to deal interpersonally with persons who scoff at reproof. Supplies to believer and unbeliever alike. We have the example of Paul in Acts, who once the gospel was rejected by the Jews, he didn't, and by the way, he didn't prejudge them. He waited until they had rejected it. He then turned from them and began preaching to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, 45 through 46, we read, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming God. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So one commentator noted, this passage here in Matthew 7 is an admonition about the necessity to limit the time and energy directed toward the hard-hearted. They were not to throw away wittingly the words of the gospel. There has to be an economy of truth. As another commentator identified, verse 6 relates to those who desire no assistance in overcoming their sin, but intend to persist in their wicked behavior. No matter how humbly or lovingly the disciple approaches such a person, the efforts to assist will only prove disastrous. Now, you can see the danger here, too. It'd be very easy to become embittered towards such a person. It'd be very easy to wipe them off and then speak down upon them. Thus, it's important to continually bring into balance. You are not to judge. You are not to condemn. You are not to slander. You are not to look down upon such a person. Certainly aren't to allow bitterness and anger to creep in. Instead, go back earlier to Jesus' words where he said, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. As we conclude our study of these verses, there are two important lessons we've really observed. First, we must avoid being critical, condemning, and judging in our attitude toward others. The solution for this is to continually deal with our own sin, cultivate a poverty of spirit, meekness, and humility, which recognizes my own sin so that I will be sympathetic, so that we will be gentle, we will be compassionate toward fellow brothers and sisters who need help, that will come alongside and offer that help. And at the same time, and this is what keeps us humble, knowing that I need your help. 
I may be offering you help today, but tomorrow I need you. The second lesson, though, is to not stop being discerning. As Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, it is because persons forget this addition to our Lord's teaching on judging that so many people lack and show a lack of discernment and are ready to praise and recommend anything that is put before them which vaguely claims the name Christian. They say that we must not judge that is regarded as friendly and charitable spirit and so men and women fall unchecked into grievous errors and their immortal souls are thrown into jeopardy. The solution to both these admonitions is to cultivate a discerning eye for the truth. And the more we do that in our own lives, the easier it'll be to identify it in others, but it will be done with a humility and a meekness. As we apply the truth first to ourselves and then to others through the lens of love. In fact, I think it's appropriate to close by reminding ourselves of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, which provides just a fitting bow if you will, to how we are to act towards one another, informing our thoughts, our opinions, and our dealings, even when we have correctly identified sin. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse four, Paul says, love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rebuke and admonition we've had this morning from these words. Help us to work hard to put on love, to walk in humility. Father, may we be people who demonstrate not superficial righteousness, but let us demonstrate repentance. Let us demonstrate the sanctification that comes as we recognize and acknowledge our sin. Let's be known for coming alongside, encouraging one another, and then welcoming the help from others. Help us to not look down upon others, to prejudge others. Help us to rid ourselves of our prejudice and our tendencies toward judging critically, slandering and attacking. Ultimately, Father, help us to be more Christ-like. Pray these things in your name, amen.